Hi, I'm Mark Spiegler, and this is Intersections, the Art Puzzle podcast brought to you by UBS. No fashion designer today commands more attention than Demna. He has won a series of major awards. His designs sell strongly worldwide. His influence extends far beyond his industry, and celebrities crowd his front rows. Yet seven years ago, the fashion world was stunned when the former Georgian refugee was designated as the new creative director for France's fabled Balenciaga house. The designer had launched his own label, Vetmal, only the year before, initially as an anonymous, quote-unquote, design collective. Vetmal was distinguished by the way in which it pulled inspiration from unglamorous brands like DHL, IKEA, and even Crocs to create singular styles with distinctive silhouettes. During his seven years at Balenciaga, Demna has repeatedly collaborated with contemporary artists. Most recently, he commissioned Santiago Sierra to design the muddy terrain of Balenciaga's October 2022 fashion show, having first encountered Sierra's work two decades ago. In this episode, which runs a little long by intersection standards, Demna discusses his war-torn childhood, the potential pitfalls of his enormous popularity, how he made peace with the luxury world, why the metaverse is not fashion's future, and what the future might hold for him. I think you'll enjoy this thoughtful conversation. And if you do, please be sure to review and favorite Intersections wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Demna, thank you so much for joining us today. Since this is a podcast, where are you right now? Could you look around the room and describe it to us? Hi, Mark, and thank you for having me. I'm actually here in Paris, sitting in my kitchen, <laughs> looking outside of the window to the River Seine. This is like my favorite thing to do after the shows, kind of hibernate at home. And what I see out of my windows is very, very sunny and beautiful day in Paris. Actually. I love the idea of you being in your kitchen. Yeah, it's my favorite place in my apartment is always the kitchen. Yeah. Do you cook a lot in that kitchen? You know what? Yes, I do. I try to cook almost every day. I and my husband, we love cooking together. It's our social moment, really. Because when I come from work, we haven't seen each other for the whole day. And so it's really our family moment. And we both like cooking and eating what we call it. So it's kind of like, yeah, the place to be for both of us. The story of Demna starts at the other end of Europe, in Georgia, during the Soviet times. And I'm curious... I'd love to hear a little bit about your childhood. You grew up, I guess, the first 10 years of your life as part of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm, yes. What was that like? Yeah, I grew up in Soviet Georgia. I mean, first 10 years is an important, very, very important part of a person's life that defines a lot of things for them. And I happened to grow up in the communist country, going to school, wearing the uniforms, singing the anthem for Lenin every morning at school. I grew up in the western part of Georgia, which has been annexed during the civil war in 1993. A bit what's going on right now in Ukraine, kind of what similar war we had Russian military jets bombing the street where I live. So I grew up there until I was 11. And then I have never gone back to the place where I grew up and was born. If I have the biography right, you moved to Tbilisi then after the civil war erupted within Georgia. Well, when they took over the town where I lived, mm -hmm. we had to flee. We had to run off. We had to run away, my whole family. And uh, we went through the Caucasus, through the mountains. We spent two weeks trying to cross those mountains, which was very scary and dangerous process. And uh, we ended up in Tbilisi, which is the capital of Georgia. But for me, it was a foreign city. It was really like going to another country. 
it was culturally, it was very cosmopolitan. There were a lot of different nationalities, people from kind of all over Soviet Union living there. And when I moved to Tbilisi, I became a refugee and people would label me that way. That's a refugee boy from Sukhumi. And in that period, because it was post-Soviet, Georgia, and especially the capital, was becoming very nationalist. I could not speak my mother tongue, which was Russian, and my Georgian was not so good. So I had to learn and adapt to try to fit in and to kind of camouflage myself because I didn't want people to know that I'm a refugee because I was ashamed of that. Because the people around me, see, they didn't make it easy for us. So that part, from 1993, for a couple of years when we lived in Tbilisi, it was pretty much of a horror for me. So you were, in a sense, a refugee or an immigrant in your own country. Yeah, which is a bit of a, it's an ironic situation, but uh, it really felt like this. I mean, I had a pretty happy childhood and I think I, I had fun and I lived within a big family with all my cousins and a very big community somehow. But then suddenly all of those memories, they have been overshadowed by this drama that happens and that drama that takes a lifetime to get over, in my case. We never happened to get back and I couldn't even get someone to go and take pictures of the home where I grew up or the school where I went or, you know, all those things that are important. I'm not even sure that it's something you can get over. You just need to, I'm trying just to live with it and consider it as part of who I am. To what extent do you think that childhood trauma shapes your work? I think it inevitably shapes my vision of things. I think the best parts of my work, or what I consider the best parts of my work, they happen on on an emotional level. And this emotional level is very much defined by the things I lived through back then in the period in Georgia. It's kind of like impossible to ignore that, or it's impossible to ignore the pain or the fear that you can have as a child going through that. And it really does shape you as an adult. I think in my 20s, I didn't really realize that. I just thought that I was depressed and I was in a dark place and I, you know, I hated everything. I had a lot of anger in me. And only later on, I would say maybe since about like four years now that I really realized what I went through and how it really impacted me. And now I start to embrace it and to face it finally and to almost use it as a tool for my creative expression in some way. I read a lot of interviews that you had done in the past in preparation for this podcast. And one thing that struck me in one interview that you did was this moment that reminded me of the Rosebud sled in Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, which is you talking about this favorite red coat that you had. And I'm curious if you can tell us about that red coat. Oh, my goodness. I think it was about me and my interest in clothes in general. And where it started, and I think the, one of the first times, or probably the very first time I remember myself being really obsessive about a piece of clothing was that little red coat in a shop window. We didn't really have many shop windows in that time in Soviet countries. Looking back, I realized that it was the period in which we were very deprived culturally. I only started to discover things in music or art or fashion even after the Soviet Union collapsed. So. It was a kind of isolated time. Obviously, I was a child, but I was a very curious child. I like to dig into things and find out about what's going on out there in the world. And this was pretty much impossible back then. Also, like everything was very unified. Like you're supposed to wear the same clothes that all the other people wore. And I always had this thing about my identity being expressed through clothes, even when I was quite a small 
child. I think at the age of six, I was very aware of what I was putting on every morning. And so it pushed me really to experiment with what I was wearing, how I would customize things, I would cut things. I was really very hands-on with clothes because of that, because there was no choice really. And I didn't grow up in a poor family. We were kind of lower middle class, I would say, for that type of back then, like Soviet society. But there was a store in the village or in the small town where my grandma lived. And I saw that coat in the window. I mean, I pretty much remember it was this bell-shaped, very bright red, kind of like a very Balenciaga shape, but for a girl in small size. And I just found it so beautiful how it fell and how the fabric was and pleats on it. It was the first time I became aware of the silhouette somehow, I think. And I was really adamant on getting this coat and asked my grandma to buy it for me. She refused to do it because she said it's for girls, so I could not wear that. But I would not leave. I just kind of refused to move from the shop window until she actually gave in and got it for me. And I think it was one of the happiest moments I had. And then I went home and I think I had a nap in the afternoon. And when I woke up, the coat was no longer there because my mom, she gave it back to the store because she obviously didn't want me to wear it. And now a brief word from our partners at UBS. From the same partnership that brings you the Intersections podcast comes the Art Basel and UBS Art Market Report. Out now, this year's edition shows how the global art market staged a phenomenal comeback in 2021. Find out how online sales fared as crowds returned to galleries and auction houses, and how changing global wealth impacted collecting trends. Get your copy now at UBS.com collecting. And now back to the show. At the age of 20, you had a father who wanted you to be a businessman and you had actually completed a degree in international economics. Mm-hmm. And then your family moved to Dusseldorf and you went to the Royal Antwerp Academy. When you've spoken about fashion education, on the one hand, you said that it's not in line with today's times, that it's outmoded. On the other hand, mm-hmm. You've pointed to the Antwerp School's very rigorous focus on things like figure drawing and teaching a broader curriculum Mm -hmm. about the arts. I mean, the Antwerp School, in terms of what you learn, is pretty close to an art school, which seems kind of old school. And I'm curious how you think about your time in Antwerp and how you think about fashion education in general. Yeah, it does seem a bit old school, but looking back at it now, I actually realized the old school part of the education system we had in Antwerp was the most important part for me. I had to force myself to go to art history lessons, I remember. I also had to force myself to go to new drawing lessons instead of going home and stitching the next prototype for my collection. And now I look back and I realize these were the things that I actually learned from the most about art history, about human body. I think new drawing was probably the most important subject I learned during four years in Antwerp. Why? The body, you know, the perspective, the 3D. Well, because, you know, most fashion designers who don't ever do that, they don't really have a relation to human body. They don't know what they're going to dress. It's like a very flat thing. People sketch on paper and then try to realize it in 3D. Whereas when you learn the anatomy of the body, I think that's one of the basic things every fashion designer needs to know. 
it's the body we are going to dress. And for me, new drawing, they did that. Looking back now, I think I have the biggest nostalgia about this time is this moment of three hours of new drawing every Thursday in the old building of the Art Academy in Antwerp. I feel like that's probably the part of my life in Antwerp I miss the most. You came out of Antwerp and you first worked for one of the real legends of the Antwerp school, which was Walter von Berendonck, but then also Martin Margiela, mm-hmm. who was equally famous as part of the Antwerp school, one of the great designers to come out of it. Mm-hmm. And then Louis Vuitton. And then in 2014, you launched your own brand, Vetement. What was it like to go out on your own after having worked for all of these people and this brand that had such a strong history? I don't know. I mean, for me, like when I graduated, I didn't really have a, an idea of what I would do after, like most of the graduates, because fashion industry is very hard to penetrate and to have the doors open for you. So Walter was actually, he was my tutor, but he was also someone who immediately, even before I graduated, he actually offered me the job opportunity. And it was a blessing for me because I knew that I could pay my bills. But after a little, I, mean, I would say probably about six months doing that, I realized that if this is my dream, then I chose the wrong dream because I was not happy doing it. You know, it was not creatively, it was not fulfilling at all. And I sent out about 80 different portfolios to 80 different brands, like literally every possible brand. None of them ever answered me, actually. I never got a reply. And I got really frustrated and kept on doing this job. And the only place that I felt like I could keep on trying to go was Margiela because conceptually, maybe on some kind of intellectual level, it was a kind of design that was really appealing to me. And I sent them a project and they called me and I moved to Paris two weeks later. And basically this kicked off my design career. And then I moved on to Vuitton, which was a bit of a very, very different brand because I wanted also to see how is it in this big structure? How is it to make a luxury product where you have different techniques available. And again, I got very disappointed after a while because creatively I found it very frustrating for me. It was a great job, but then I felt like this is not what I actually dreamt about. This is not what I wanted. I wanted to push boundaries. I wanted to create a new language and I will never be able to do it there. So this is when the Vetmont idea was born out of frustration, out of my personal frustration with my great job, (laughs) you know, where I realized it's the time now for me to try to do something I've always wanted to do. And the only way for me to do it, because I was completely unknown designer back then, obviously, for everyone in the industry, was to start my own project. And I put money aside for years working, knowing that this moment would come and Everything I put aside, not going on holidays, not having, you know, this and that. I invested everything in this project. There was no one to support me. And I actually was ready to do a second job on the side to be able to pay my bills. That was like my beginning of that month. I never planned for it either to be a commercial success, nor for it to define my career. I just wanted to have fun and to express myself through clothes. What's interesting in your biography, and, and I think exceptional, is that within a year of launching Vetement, you were asked to go to Balenciaga. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious how that happened and how it felt, because obviously Vetement was a brand that was based very much on ordinary, everyday objects and looks. And Balenciaga was the legacy of Cristobal Balenciaga, who was an icon within the industry and not at all an engineer of the everyday. 
Well, I think, yeah, you're right in saying that Redmond was based on these ordinary things that people could relate to. Uh, but it was also something else. It was also a lot of work around the construction of a garment about silhouette, about shape, about volume, things that are very important in my work in general. And Redmond was the first time where I could really express that and I could really do that, you know, in a way that had a very big impact, I think, on how fashion was back then. It stood out from everything else and it really screamed something that was necessary to be heard back then. I believe that the reason why people who were in charge of recruitment back then at Caring, they actually saw this in my work. It wasn't because that mall was buzzy and everybody was talking about it and, you know, we were a scandal of Paris. It wasn't about that. It was about them seeing in my work something that they could immediately relate to this heritage and to the way that Balenciaga constructed the clothes. I knew that from the very beginning when I was approached and I started to research about Balenciaga's work, I knew immediately the link. It was not a conceptual link. It was not an aesthetic link at all. It was a link of the silhouette of the way I work with the human body and how I make clothes on it. It was really that. I don't think that it ever felt like a safe bet to take someone like me to a heritage house. Definitely not. It's because people who did it, they had a vision and they understood my vision. And I think that's where like kind of match made in heaven in a way, because it just all made sense later on when I started to make my collections there. As you said, they took a risk because they wanted someone to reinvent the brand. And in a lot of ways you did that. Now, of course, it seems like an amazing success. And I'm sure everybody now claims that they always knew it was going to be that. But I'm sure there were people, perhaps even yourself, who wondered about how you would reinvent Balenciaga and what it would mean and how much you could push the brand, how quickly. I always work one day at a time. I don't try to overthink and to jump too much into the future and think, oh, how can I reinvent? I think I never had like in my mind a challenge or an idea to reinvent Balenciaga. If I had so, I think it would have been very, very difficult for me because it would create almost a psychological constraint for me to do so. So I just thought, you know, I knew that I could do things. I could live with this heritage and make my own story there. Otherwise, I would have never dared to even agree to go there. I knew it before I signed my contract, but I didn't know specifically what and how, because I think you cannot predict the creative process. I mean, once you can predict the creative process, it's no longer creative. One of the things about being a designer, which you've talked about in the past, is that on the one hand, you shouldn't aim just to please the consumer. You shouldn't design things because you think they'll be profitable. And on the other hand, you've talked about the importance of considering the consumer, of making clothes that can be worn. I'm curious how you walk this particular tightrope and how you think about this and what advice you would give to people in your field or in other fields who are facing this constant dilemma. Well, I think more and more people in fashion are becoming aware of the fact that we need to consider the customer because, I mean, ultimately, who do we do it for? We do it for someone. We do it in order to create desire in someone to purchase it, right? And to wear it and to be happy wearing it. Because otherwise, we're just living in this disconnected reality, drawing things and not caring about who actually needs that. And I'm always extremely, extremely interested in knowing the experience people have wearing 
what I do. Sometimes in a brand the size of Balenciaga, I also have to, I wouldn't say compromise because I hate that, but I have to walk the tightrope of how far the commerciality can go. And I'm very much aware of that. But I do filter it to my own being myself, a customer. What would it do to me? But it's definitely not the beginning point of the process for me. I start by going as far as I can, and then I start to edit things, edit ideas into what I consider could become a product that people may want or that would create this desire. I think creating the desire is a very, very important, fundamentally important thing in fashion design. It's really all about that, as an essence. So my advice to like anybody who does fashion is really do whatever you want, but never forget that you do it for someone, for someone that you want to have a great experience, owning it, wearing it, etc. One of the things that our society does particularly well is to take huge teams, organizations, brands, et cetera, and narrow it down to one person who sort of stands for that. And I'm curious how you feel about this thing that happens in our society where it all becomes about you, that you are Balenciaga. Is that a thing that's difficult for you? Is that a thing you try to fight with? I know I don't try to fight that because the society obviously needs to have one spokesperson and everything. It's much easier to handle things this way. So, I mean, it would be much more difficult for people who know Balenciaga to try to associate it to 4,000 people who work for it, you know. And I am the leader in this team. I am the one who makes decisions, who guides my teams, who works together with them, asks for their opinion, changes my own opinion because of what I hear from them often. It's a work process in which my responsibility is being the leader. So in a way, there is no point for me to fight that. I do acknowledge and I often publicly express the appreciation and the fact that what I do is not the work of one person. It could never be, never on any level, not in Balenciaga, anywhere. But I do take the credit for my work at this brand as well as that I do take or I did take for a long period of time, the punches for it. If there is something that is misunderstood, misinterpreted, or, you know, people hate, it's about me, not about everybody else who is behind that. So in a way, it's an advantage, but it's also a disadvantage. But it's also part of the game that I cannot or don't want to change anything. I think a good leader has to take all of the hits and try to spread all of the credit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, a good leader has to accept that he's a leader to be able to do that. I think that's also often people are very hesitant about it or they don't feel good enough to be that. I'm very, very transparent about that. I've always been that. I've always been a leader since I remember myself. And my being in this position for me is very natural. I don't feel there is anything wrong with that. I need that. Otherwise, I think the world could not function. Here's a question, and it may be misguided or provocative, but I'll pose it anyway. You are now, as a brand and as a designer, in a position where literally anything that you make and put out into the world will be bought and will be worn. In the same way that when a painter becomes incredibly popular, whatever she or he paints has a waiting list for it before it's even painted, which I would say is dangerous because in a sense, the brand becomes more powerful than the product, which can mean that the product 
doesn't have to be as strong as it was before. And do you ever worry about that? Is your popularity almost a potential trap for you as a creator? <laughs> wow, this question is like one of the most complex ones, I think. It is always. It is, I think. But it's not only now. I think that's something that I'm aware of for a while now. It's a very dangerous thing. Popularity is always very dangerous. Whatever it is, the form of whether it's fashion or art, I think it's, as you say, you can do anything and it can sell. And I think that's the dangerous part because that's when you need to switch on your personal tools of judgment towards your own work to be able to avoid the disaster. I didn't have to think about this when I started. Not at all. I do have to think about it now. I cannot say that this is something I have on my mind all the time, but it's part of my filter of whenever I do a product, I do switch on that filter and I really, really think over about it. And as I said, very often I do something that I might be like 90% about, not 100. And this is the most difficult part for me because I don't like 90%. You were quoted recently as saying that fashion used to be a battle for you and that's why there was a lot of darkness and aggression in it. But today you feel more at peace with the system. And I'm curious what you meant by that. Well, my struggle, it's not necessarily over. It's just like it has a different shape, form now. <laughs> uh, being an outsider, thinking outside of the box, it was very hard for me to really assimilate with the whole fashion industry. Like being part of it, being somewhat in the center of it, but then feeling like I live on a different fashion planet completely. It's a hard thing to do because you always feel unheard. You always feel that you are not valued. You always feel like people don't understand what you're trying to say every single time. It did feel to me, like I would say maybe eight years ago, that I was fighting the fight that I could not win. But it didn't matter. The victory didn't matter to me. I just wanted it to be my fight, always. You know, I wanted to defend what I stand for creatively. My last show on Sunday was really a manifesto to that to standing up for who you are, your identity, your creative identity, all of that. The fact that today I have the fashion elites say hello to me, they come to my shows, they consider me finally, it's somehow a victory probably. But it's almost like a boring victory because it only happened when Balenciaga became successful, when my name was out there, celebrities started to wear my clothes and all of that. So it's almost like it's not my victory. Somebody came and helped me win. And I feel that's somehow frustrating in some, in some way. But on the other hand, also I am happy about it because I no longer think about making fashion industry understand what I do. I just do it. Whether I'm part of it or not, it doesn't matter anymore. And I don't have anybody to convince or anybody to explain things to. The only people I need to have a conversation with is the people who wear what I do and who understand what I do and who really who appreciate it too. And that takes a lot of weight off my shoulders as a designer. That's why I said I feel more at ease or I feel kind of liberated. Some way Couture did it, I think. Since I started Couture at Balenciaga, suddenly I found a position in this industry in which it's uncontested. You know, I can just chill out and do what I truly believe in without thinking about business or thinking about media or comments or what other people think. All of that suddenly evaporated. It just liberated me as a creative. It's interesting because you put out a statement in conjunction with this show 
And the basic through line of that statement was that you were no longer going to try to explain the work, that people would either like it or dislike it. And it felt to me like you were kind of saying, your opinion is fine, but it's not going to shape how I think about what I do. Exactly. You understood it exactly as I, as I intended it to be understood. You know, I need to say this now because it is important for me to explain why I do not want to describe what I do because there is no point in doing that. Fashion is a visual art. You perceive it with your eyes, you put it through your brain and you decide. It's up to everybody's decision and interpretation what they think about this or that product, collection, statement, whatever brand does. And as many people there are in the world, as many there are opinions. Why make this statement now? Because as you said, this was a mentality or perspective that you've had for a while, but why make it explicit now with this statement? Was there a particular incident or sentiment that you felt you needed to respond to? Well, I mean, I think it's because of the nature of the show and the collection I showed on Sunday, which actually was a lot about identities and being outsiders, being a weirdo and being who you are and being proud of that and standing up for it as much as people would maybe not want you or not accept you or look down at you. Going for it and believing in yourself is something that I've been doing since I remember myself. And I think the show was all about that. That's why it was the moment in which I thought I have to express that on the piece of paper so people really understand what I mean. Even though this has been my state of mind for a while, it's not something new for me. Speaking of your shows, I have two very different questions. I'll start with architecture. Mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say that architecture has been a bigger facet of your shows than it is for any designer I can think of currently. That... What you're building is not just a platform for the garments, but rather an entire scenography and an entire space within which they exist. Is architecture a thing that's really important to you among the creative disciplines? Clothing is something I do naturally, and it's something that I love doing most. But obviously, everything visual and all the different layers in which we live as a human being, well, clothing is layer one, and then you have another layer, which is our habitat, I mean, our homes. And then it grows further and further and becomes the world. So for me, architecture is a very, very important part of my aesthetic vision. I'm currently working on a project for myself and my husband. We're building a home of our from scratch, literally. We're like designing uh, light switches and you know, things like that, something that I've never done in my life. But I realized how much I enjoy it as well because it's a very, very creative process. When it comes to the shows, it has become like this. I would say from the moment we did a video tunnel show some years ago, I really realized how much I love the scenography and the set design. It's almost like creating this movie. And I got so into it that I think ever since we've been trying to discover different ways of creating this visual statement and a story around the collection. And I have to say that I love doing it. I don't know. It's probably the second thing I like most after doing clothes. One of the ways in which you've explored presenting your collections is virtually. You did a VR game for the 2021 collection. You did a virtual collection in the metaverse. You've done interviews in the metaverse. I'm curious how you see this completely digital dimension playing into the very analog 
reality of making clothes. You're someone who's talked about the need mm -hmm. to relate to the body and its dimensions and in the four dimensions, mm -hmm. including the movement. And yet the digital is bits and bytes rather than atoms and molecules, which is what you normally work with. And I'm curious how you see this terrain in terms of your explorations. I think the curiosity is a driving force for me as a creative. And it would be almost a shame for me not to want to know what's going on there in these bits and bytes and, you know, in this whole digital world we are facing. This is why I tried different things. I mean, the video game was probably the most complex show output or collection output I ever did because we worked on it for, I think, almost a year. And it was an area in which I had zero knowledge, zero experience. And I love things like that. But obviously, there are limitations. And as you, as you said, there are no human bodies involved. There are no human beings involved, really, in the digital world. It's avatars. It's two-dimensional. It's a lot of things that I actually think cannot live within the fashion context the way I love it. But on the other hand, I can also not neglect this new reality that is arising and that is going to take more and more place in people's lives. So my participation in it or my efforts of exploring it and experimenting with it, it's really out of this curiosity of what we can do. Ultimately, as a designer, the only thing I'm interested in is, is dressing humans. I'm not interested in dressing avatars or selling skins in metaverse. This is really not what I've signed up for, but it's part of it. I leave that door open because I think it is important to do that. I think it is important for the future of fashion as well, because otherwise it may become what couture has become, actually. Something that is a part of history and not in sync with reality and with right now. One of the ways in which you've... I think explored the creative realm has been to work with other people, specifically in many cases, artists. Most recently, Santiago Sierra, I don't know how to describe this, I guess, who created with you the environment for your most recent show just last weekend. How did you come across Santiago's work? Because he's in a very different part of the art world than John Raffman or Eliza Douglas, with whom you've also done projects. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. What's the backstory there? I actually first found out about his work at uh, the Venice Biennale when he did Spanish Pavilion. And I have a lot of connection to his work, which is often very political and a lot linked to capitalism and the way we see it and the social classes, etc., etc. It's something that I can really relate to as a creative, probably more than to any other artist I know. I have seen his mud installation. It really touched me a lot. I was very moved by it and stayed somehow in, in my subconscious mind, I guess. And when after last show, which I did in March, we had the snowstorm that we recreated in the set. I thought like, what is my narrative? What's going to be the continuation, evolution of that set? And I thought the snow has to melt. And what happens when the snow melts, it becomes mud. And that moment when the word mud came into my mind, I thought I want to try to get in touch with Santiago and see if he would want to work together on this. And it happened so that Santiago agreed to do it. And I have to say that I feel blessed that I could do it together with him because there was such a deep emotion to what he created there. And this is exactly what I want art to do. It's interesting. Santiago Sierra is one of the artists I wrote about when I was still a journalist. And it was the toughness of that work. And actually it was leading up to his Venice biennial appearance. Santiago comes from a quite poor Spanish family 
went to school in Hamburg and mm-hmm. was living very much sort of in the red light district. And it was only when he went to Mexico and he was still as a poor Spaniard, much wealthier than most of the Mexicans around him, that he sort mm-hmm. of started to dig into the issues of class that define him now. And it was yes. being in Mexico that took him away from being a very conceptual artist and one who was digging into literally the most difficult parts of class issues within the art world. I think that I feel a lot of relation to everything he does, almost every piece of work he did, because there is something in it about contradiction also a lot. And I read once him saying something like self-criticism makes you feel more morally superior and that he gives the high society and high culture the mechanisms to unload their morality and their guilt. When I read this, it really did something to me because I feel that it spoke to me so strongly because that's how I feel about what I do in fashion a lot. Often people are like, oh, you're like... You're in the middle of this industry and then you are like criticizing it or, you know, having this tongue in cheek comment about how the industry is dysfunctional and all of that and putting like a luxury shoe or luxury clothes into a mud. It's like very, you know, it's really like a blasphemy. Who does that? Luxury is supposed to be put on a pedestal. I mean, that I, when I read that, I realized I, I saw myself in that, you know, I saw myself as that person within the industry that actually by criticizing it from within gives it an opportunity to repent. Maybe, I don't know how to explain it otherwise, but there is something in there. And uh, that's why meeting Santiago for me was a very, very emotionally, very strong moment. And especially doing this mud thing with him now, because it was about putting the idea of the luxury brand walking in the mud, it was all I wanted to do <laughs> for a while, I think. One of the things that surprised a lot of people was that you left Paris at one point and moved first to Zurich and then to the countryside between Zurich and Baden. Mm-hmm. Talk about your choice to do that. Was it personal? Was it professional? Was it both? Because it was surprising to everybody. It was more personal, I would say, definitely. When I moved to Paris, I think I had 10 different apartments that I had to change (laughs) throughout the years. And I loved Paris, but gradually I became very frustrated with Paris. You know, I was too much in the middle of this fashion capital of the world doing fashion. I don't know. I realized that I needed to step away from it in order to function as a designer the way I wanted to function. Switzerland was really the only option that I considered because I wanted to be in Europe. I wanted to be close to Paris or to my family as well. But also there was something about it being a safe place, being a place where you kind of in a shelter somehow. I think all my life I felt unsafe and I struggled a lot with that due to what happened to me during the war, but also after with me being gay and me trying to express myself through my clothes. So ultimately, when I met Loic and we came together and started our family, we felt that we wanted to be in a place where we could feel safe, where we could feel protected physically or, you know, from every point of view. And that's why the choice fell to Switzerland. And I can say now that it's really like a safe haven to which I am going there now this weekend. And 
I really can't wait. Disconnecting from this very, very extreme and intense rhythm I have here in Paris. On the other hand, going to Switzerland also made me fell back in love with Paris in some way. Now coming here once a month, it really gives me an opportunity to enjoy it. I love Paris. It's also part of who I am now. But I also like my squirrels in Argyle. <laughs> I go back there and there is no sound. There is no car passing at my home. It's like I literally live in the forest. So it's healthy. It's good for my head. It reminds me of a previous podcast this season where Moses Sumney, the musician, talked about the need for solitude as part of his creative process. And not that solitude is always easy, but the need to be with himself away from other people. Is that important to you as well? It's one of the most important things to me. I realized it also with time. I realized how important it is to me. I think maybe 10 years ago, I was almost afraid to be alone with myself because I was so unsure and so inconfident and questioning everything. I was more afraid of myself than other people, but that's why I always surrounded myself with people. And I always worked with teams and at night was always going on like that until I realized that actually I'm the best I can be creatively when I'm alone. And I've always had a complex about this. I've always thought I don't have many friends. What's wrong with me? Why don't I have people around me? Why am I such a loner? And it always felt like such a wrong thing for me to be a loner until I realized that actually it's not wrong at all. And probably the relationship to myself is the most important relationship I will ever have in my life. But it takes time and it takes somehow maturity to realize that and to embrace it. And now every season when I start a new collection or when I start to work on a concept, I have one week at home alone. I hardly even ever see Lloyd during these days, actually. We only see each other in the evening. I close myself in my atelier or I go walking in the forest. I really have this moment of connecting to myself to kick off every single project I do. I think every person is different, but to me, the solitude, being alone, being in your own space, it has become the most cherished moment to me, not only as a creative, but also as a human being in general. You mentioned before how the shows were like movies with actors and set design and music. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have gone from art, like Julian Schnabel, or from mm -hmm. fashion, like Tom Ford, mm -hmm. into making movies. You at one point said that going into couture extended fashion by another 10 years, but I'm curious what you see yourself doing 10 years from now. I see myself being a dad in 10 years from now. I think that's going to be my main job, regardless of what other things I will be doing. I often question myself, what is it that I want to do in the future? I think during this pandemic, actually, I really realized that what I like doing most is making clothes. I'm not sure about fashion in itself because fashion is, to me is a very different thing than making clothes. But I know that all my life I want to be making clothes. I think that's what I'm supposed to do somehow because that's what I do my best. Because I'm a very curious person, like I want to go into places where I haven't been. I don't exclude the possibility for me uh, to work on some other visual form. I know that I'm open to experiment. And I know that my main job in my life is making clothes. Mm -hmm. For me, there is a moment in which I will probably be bored of it and where I will have to find a new ways of self-expression and creative expression than just making clothes. And now for our final two questions, which artwork do you first remember seeing? 
It's very primitive. But the one I remember as a child, seeing a reproduction, it actually it was in my school, in the art class. It was like a poster, I don't know what, or it looked like a reproduction of Michelangelo's creation of Adam. The, the fresco from the Sistine Chapel, we had that. I, the reason why I remember it still, I guess, it, not because I would realize the artistic value of it, I didn't know who it was, but I remember those fingers touching each other. I don't know how to explain that, but I think as a child, I was looking a lot for that connection, for the physical connection or a human connection with my parents or with my family, two people touching each other's hands. That's my first memory of something that is related to a classic art. What is the artwork that most recently moved you? This is a very difficult question, Mark. I often think that I'm very, very critical with myself, but I'm also very critical with other things and especially with art because I have such a high expectation from art to trigger something. You know, I always feel like it has to do something to me. It has to disgust me. It has to make me excited or horny or I don't know what, but it has to do something. And very often it doesn't. Very often it doesn't, unfortunately, maybe because my expectations are so high. I have to say that I watched Bill Viola's Ascension video some time ago, and I cried watching it. And that's probably from the recent history, the thing that really triggered a very strong emotion in me through its beauty and through its desperation. And just visually, just visually did something, something inside of me happened. And I sobbed for like 10 minutes watching it. I sobbed longer than the video itself. Demna, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mark. It was really fun talking to you about all of this, all those different things. Thank you for listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast brought to you by UBS. To make sure you don't miss an episode, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please tell a friend and consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you.